Welcome to episode 13 of the Daz and Daz NBA podcast. Uh, I'm joined again by Darren Hill. How are you, Darren? I'm really good, Daz. Yeah, How still getting over Wisconsin, another heartbreaking loss in the NCAA tournament. Tell you what, we Wisconsin fans, we find a way to have overtime losses, mate. I tell you what. Yeah. Yeah, always one of the more entertaining, well, certainly in recent years, one of the more entertaining uh, teams in the NCAA tournament. I wanted to start our time together tonight by talking about the NCAA tournament because one of the, I haven't sort of followed it too much, to be perfectly honest. I've seen a few highlights and things like that, but one of the, uh, matchups that really did intrigue me was Kentucky against UCLA and the fact that Kentucky really wiped the floor with UCLA. Although you did see the game, maybe it was a bit closer than the final score suggested. But the thing that jumped out to me was you had two prospects, two top 10 prospects going up against each other. Um, Ball, who Lorenzo Ball, who is um, some people saying number one, certainly number one or two in most people's minds. And DeAndre Fox, who was probably around six, seven in a lot of mock drafts that I've seen. And DeAndre Fox absolutely wiped the floor with him. He got 39 points. Uh, Lorenzo Ball got around 10 points uh, from memory, so I should have the box score up in front of me. But I just wanted to get your take, I guess, what you, you made of that performance. And how do we judge you? I mean, because I'd be a terrible scout. If I saw that, I'd be like, I'm drafting DeAndre Fox ahead of ball no matter what i would throw everything else out the window so i can see the new york knicks in the draft going maybe getting the four pick or something and going you know what yeah tatum looks good but we're going to go with deandre fox because of what he did in that one game against ball he's the ball stopper and all this sort of stuff but um the knock on him's generally burned deandre fox is that he can't shoot but uh what did you make of that performance and, and how much do you think that might affect teams thinkings or thinking come the draft time I love the game was actually more entertaining and it was closer than it, than the score indicated. Although the gap was consistently about 10 points. He felt at any point he still like could go on a run or he just waited for, for Kentucky to finally miss a shot or two. And they just didn't Fox just didn't miss. So, um, I, I, you know, how I, I sort of watch basketball. I love the contrasting styles. Lorenzo ball just glides the guy just is almost a swan like he just everything's effortless he just moves smoothly he finds his positions he leaps quite and he's got quite athletic a game to him he is a pure now i see i had a really that's the first time i'll be honest i sat and watched 40 minutes of of ball in a game and now i can see where people talk about this jason kid in this kid sort of references Kid was a physical force, right? He didn't have the athleticism. So different physically, but just the way they control the game. And he's just a step ahead of everyone. He didn't have a great shooting game, but what UCLA was doing really well was this kid Welsh and another lottery pick, um, uh, what's his first name, TJ? It's Leaf, the sort of power forward. He's got a nice stretch of four game. They were playing brilliantly, and then they got in foul trouble. So what was happening is Kentucky just broke him down and Fox was breaking down the defense all the time. They couldn't keep him in front of him. I'm just drawing all kinds of fouls. And so Welsh um, in particular got into foul trouble and the whole game changed when the guys got three and four fouls and they sat on the bench. And then, yeah, Fox and Monk kind of went a bit crazy. 
Well, here's the box score. I mean, uh, Lorenzo Ball, 10 points, uh, four turnovers, eight assists, one from six from three-pointer, three-point land. Uh, DeAndre Fox, 39 points. Uh, didn't shoot any, only he shot one three, missed it. 13 of 20 from the the field, 13 of 15 from the three-throw line. Lorenzo Ball only got there twice. Uh, only the four assists for Fox, so not a, a great uh, stat there, but he had two steals, three boards. I mean, just if you just look at the box score, you're like, this is sure. no contest. But obviously, sure. there's a lot more to the game and a lot more to scanning, a lot more to look well, at those players than just taking me, it in that context. It was a continuation of a theme for me, was that the refereeing in this tournament has been spotty, would be the nice way to say it. It has been awful at times. And so what I saw, I don't have an emotional interest um, in the game, but I saw a ridiculous number of fouls that were, you know, a little grab here, a little forearm there. And so UCLA just got in foul trouble. And so Fox was at the line constantly. And where Lorenzo Ball's game is a little more, right, a little more finesse, I guess would say, but in a, in the best way possible. And Fox is a little more of the chaotic, you know, get himself to the lane, throw his arms up or have a, you know, a four sort of dish inside. Just there was just a lot of, I guess, a lot of physical play. And so again, the I don't want to say just the refereeing, but it definitely affected how they played. I think the game in December was probably more emblematic of these two teams playing at full strength, playing at full speed. The game that UCLA won in Kentucky was like ninety-five to ninety or something like that. A phenomenal college game. But um, but to your point, Fox, I think. If there are um, scouts who've changed their their views on a player with one game, I'd probably say they're a bit short-sighted. That being said, what you can see in Fox is his straight-line speed. He can break down the defense. So I, he certainly didn't hurt himself. Um, what I found a bit odd was – I find him, he's more than odd. He's a bit of a dick. John Calipari after the game, which is suddenly this – braggadocious, like, yeah, well, it's sort of like, I'm so clever. Once I see someone's hot, we have, we don't get enough credit for our in-game techniques. And we just decided this game, we're going to go off De'Aaron. And and next game, we're going to go off uh, Malik if he's hot. And another game, if Bam is hot, we're going to run our offense through him. Just what I saw was this asshole taking credit for his, his kid's amazing play. So that was probably my, my more, I just want to pick on Coach Cal, basically. This annoying post-game response was, you know, like he's taking credit for some... Well, I think that's... Some a massive strategy. I think that's a theme in college basketball, to be honest. We've got a lot of coaches, not all coaches, but I do find a lot of the coaches are me, 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 and they don't deflect some the praise onto the players as much as what they probably should. Um, he didn't at cases. all. Yep. So, and to be fair, DeAndre Fox did come back down to earth against North Carolina in the next game, shot five of 14, 13 points, three assists. So, you know, it, it, it didn't sort – I think it was a one-game – yeah. it shows you why the one-game sample size um, is probably not the way to go. But that's why, as I said, I, I would be a terrible sticker because I'd go on that one game. I could oh. almost guarantee it. Well, they say that the four, the four Ps of – of um, scouts are the the poor, the P, the poor scouts, the scouts who aren't any good. The picker scouts are the ones who pick on something about a player. They find a fault. They just don't let it go. 
and they influence their teams based on saying, oh, God, look at that. You know, uh, Rajon Rondo can't shoot a jumper, so don't touch him. Um, but there's the production scouts who perhaps you fall in that camp, which is how do you ignore players who play at that high level and produce? They produce Ws and they produce, you know, numbers. And then there's the projection scouts. So the scouts who have, you know, are more about how do I imagine how this player, if his body fills out and he learns a certain style of play, how he's going to fill out. And uh, even an untrained eye like ours, though, if you looked at, if you saw enough game, Daz, I guarantee once you saw a ball, the way Lorenzo Ball runs a, runs a team, it's like a, almost imagine if Ricky Rubio could shoot and it was taller and actually faster. Like Ball is that good of a, of a facilitator. Hmm. So um, it's, it's a, there's a big gap between Ball and Fultz and, uh, and Fox, but Fox will definitely get taken in the lottery. He'll, he'll help somebody. Oh, no but, doubt. Um, no doubt. But, I mean, I think yeah. the big thing that's jumped out to me the last few times I've watched it, it's one of the reasons I sort of shy away now. I just think the one-and-done era has has killed off the quality of college basketball. I mean, maybe, maybe we just have nostalgic memories of it, but I remember some of those old Kentucky-North Carolina games and the, and the Duke game. I'm talking about the Christian Leitner shot and things like that. I mean, they were just higher-quality games, and these guys were, you could see... They were just about NBA ready at the stage of those big games in the tournament. Whereas now you're seeing a lot of guys that people are touting as these major prospects and they can bring it one night and then the next night they just disappear because they're not quite ready, to my mind, to take that step into the... And to think they're going to be in the NBA next year is a little bit scary and people have all these high hopes and high expectations. If you look you know, similar to what top draft picks would have had in the past and I think it's a little bit unfair but I don't think there is an answer um, other than finding a way to pay the players to, to allow them to stay in college longer um, but I think it, there's no question in my mind that's hurt the, the quality of the product but it's still as popular as ever so they, they don't really have any incentive to change it This year felt unusually poor so I, I, I think I'm with you in that the one and done has created a bit of it's created two things. One's it's created um, a lot of standing around and watch the star player like Kansas. Um, and Frank Mason, the senior runs around and has to shoot 20 times a game just to have, you know, so he feels like part of the team when he's got someone like um, Josh Jackson on the team. who's a, he's kind of Alan Wiggins. He's very Wiggins like, right. So it's created a lot of that at the same time, which we alluded to with Calipari, it's created a lot of not coaching. Like how can you actually coach and put in a system when you've got a guy for 25 or 30 games and he's such a superior talent. So um, that's what I think has happened. So you got this contrast. You got these teams with the super athletes with no system, i.e. Um, Kentucky in particular, or you've got teams like, um, the, again, the, my benchmark of course was the Badgers for a couple of years. We had very senior junior and senior teams, Sam Decker and, and Frank Kaminsky leading them to back-to-back final fours in a championship game with, with senior play and last year Villanova had a lot of juniors and seniors on their teams. So um, if you like watching stars kind of and have part of that you sort of feel like you're, you get a, a bit of a glimpse into them before they become stars, then I guess you like the style of play. But um, I I'm with you though. I, I like quality basketball and there's been a lot of not quality basketball in this tournament. Even that Badgers um, Florida game, which was, dramatic for a thousand reasons there's a lot of 
not great coaching and poor inbounds play and missed free throws and bad execution. It was a uh, just super, super dramatic because of the two miracle running three pointers at the buzzer in overtime and in regulation. But the quality of play, even I have to admit, I go, that was a bit of a poetic justice game. And so the Badgers losing that one, I go, you look fair play. They lost on the last second shot the same way the Badgers tied it in regulation. But, you know, it was an ugly, it was an ugly amateur basketball game. And that's been a lot. The the other one I watched was Oregon, um, Oregon, Kansas, where Oregon beat them by like 15. And you just look at one stat. Kansas was five for 25 from three. Oregon was 11 for 25 from three. Shots don't go in, right? When these stars, the shots don't go in. The game is ugly. It's really ugly because there's not a lot of movement. There's not a lot of system going on. So that's what I mean when, when the shots don't go in for the stars. It's, boy, you know, I have no problem switching over to watch the Pelicans versus the Magic, <laughs> especially, if, especially if Boogie's on the bench. So anyway, um, if you're a super, super geek, you'll love the fact it's Gonzaga, Oregon, South Carolina in the Final Four, but you'd really have to be a college basketball geek um, to like that. It's a defensive teams who are, yeah, kind of grinded their way to the Final Four, which is a bit unusual. I thought Gonzaga so. had made it in the Adam Morrison the year, but uh, apparently they didn't as their first first trip. They'd never made the Final Four. Yeah, they've had high seedings before, but yeah, they just... I guess this is the knock on them. They just don't have that. They don't have a tough schedule. Uh, not much they can do about that except for in the preseason. But, uh, yeah, they just don't seem to have that battle-tested um, thing the way some of these other teams do. But, uh, yeah. All right, we'll, let, we'll move back to the NBA um, for Please. now. But we'll certainly <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll talk more draft prospects, obviously, as, as we get closer to the draft. Um, and maybe even touch on a couple of those. We're going to talk a little bit of Tankathon later in this episode. But what what sort of jumped there to you over the weekend? We had three, I think, major things that jumped there that me and I, and I think from talking to you off here is similar for you. There was the Devin Booker seventy point game. There was the fact that the Bucks uh, had a really nice road trip. Went four and two on their road trip. Then went and beat Atlanta. Um, they lost to Chicago. I'm going to let you have a bit of a chat about that game and, and, and share your thoughts on that. And the Clippers lost two absolutely heartbreaking games to Dallas and Sacramento. I'll probably deal with them last. But quickly to touch on the Devin Booker game first. And I said to you before we started that I felt like there was a bit of an asterisk game. That one, it was uh, Celtics were up by 27 at half time, And they just, it, it was everyone in cruise control in the second half. Um, but what did you make of that? Did you see any of the game? I didn't see any of the game. I just read a little bit afterwards. Um, but no. did you see any game? And what did you sort of make of the performance? I watched the NBA TV, like the six-minute highlight version of it, which was yep. basically six minutes of Devin Booker. Um, it was fun, right? It's really fun. It's a We've talked about this a few pods ago where you can see the difference on the court and, and the difference on the court as a manifestation of, of organizational alignment with Phoenix, they're having fun versus the product on the court in Los Angeles with the Lakers is not fun and it's ugly and it's broken and it's weird. And I go, so that for me is it felt fun and it felt in the right spirit. It wasn't quite when Kobe had his, what did Kobe score in his final game? 50 points or something? Uh, 60. Or 50 or 60. Right. 
So it wasn't quite, yeah, it wasn't quite Kobe game where everyone's just standing around almost all-star game like, but it was close. My Booker was hot, right? Um, and I, I think he had 47 through three and a game was out of reach. And so what I saw was in the fourth quarter in particular, Boston wasn't defending him. The crowd was getting into it. His teammates were into it. The Boston bench was kind of laughing and going, oh, shit, right? So it was fun. It was was bordering on exhibition, um, but it couldn't happen again to a, a more fun team. So it was fun. Well, I think the the thing that got me, he only had four threes, so it wasn't like he caught fire from long distance uh, and he, you know, drained 10 threes or something. Uh, he was doing it all basically in the mid-range, but Earl Watson also That's started, right. Earl Watson started fouling the Celtics towards the end. Um, in a in a game they were down by double figures, just to prolong it and see how many Devin Booker could get, which I thought was an amusing sort of twist. Um, he was smiling win. though, right? He was. Oh, they were all having fun. It was it yeah, was a bit so, of fun. So yeah, so that's where I got. You remember my um, the uh, eleven of you who tuned in last week <laughs> for my f bomb tirade about fan experience? I go, that's why you pay to go to an NBA game is for that, right? So when everyone's in on it together, the fans, the coaches, the players on both sides, I go, why not? I mean, it was fucking fun, right? And Booker's 20, you know? It was a lot more fun than watching that fossilized, you know, wreck of a, of a you know, a broken down ship the way Kobe was chucking up flat-footed 21-footers in that final game, right? There was nothing beautiful about that. So it's fun, so I go, good on you. I, I was just, it was happy. It was a fun little NBA moment. But I think you, I think you put it right. It's probably an asterisk game. Um, I don't think Devin Booker's going to hit 16 more mid-range jumpers ever again in a single game. But um, it was fun. Well, it wasn't in the flow of the game, I guess. That's that's nah. something. But it really is. Yeah. I mean, I think to score 70 in today's and in the flow of a game would be very, very difficult. Oh, well, f- but to be fair, I think 40 of his 70 were, though. I think that was my point. It was, you know, look, the game was – Boston had a comfortable lead, and who was – the Phoenix was missing. Um, was Chris out? Or was Euless? Uh, they had some injuries as well. Play, I don't think. Euless didn't play. Euless didn't play. That's it. So it was um, – so Booker just had the ball in his hands the whole time. So well, yeah, I, was... I, thought it was, I thought it was a harmless, harmless fun. Let's just hope it doesn't do to him what it did to Brandon Jennings – you know, a few years ago when he scored his 55 in his ninth game or something. Look, I think Booker's got a lot more sustainability to his jump shot, so I don't think his career is at any danger of having us unrealistic expectation placed upon him the way it was under Jennings. But uh, that was a great moment. That was definitely a highlight. On the, on the point of you never know what's going to happen in the NBA, I saw that. I made a point before we spoke tonight of actually watching the Sacramento uh, Clippers go watch the last quarter. And... It was a fascinating game, to say the least. Uh, five minutes to go. The Clippers are up 18. Uh, Paul Pierce hits a shot. The arena's just dead. There's no atmosphere. Everyone's just thinking this is exactly what we expected. Uh, Clippers are going to win easy. People were probably already thinking about heading for the exits. And then the uh, Sacramento Kings went on one of the most improbable runs that I've ever seen <laughs> in the game of basketball and ended up pulling the game out by a point. Um, and, they, and they just, 
it, believe it or not, it wasn't even like there was a couple of plays where it sort of big moments. So they sort of chipped it away to eleven, and and Doc had all the starters sitting, and then so he brings them back on. They're they're down eleven, then they score one. Clippers miss because um, Jamal Crawford just started chucking shots up left, right, and centre, and then so it's it goes from eleven down to nine. Crawford misses, then Buddy Hill comes down, hits a three. Now it's six. Then uh, Blake Griffin inbounds it straight to Buddy Hill. Hill goes out in the corner, hits another three. Now they're down three, with two minutes to go. So and now the Clippers, you can just tell. And I just and I was sitting there thinking like it would have been fantastic to avert that game. Not if you're a Clippers fan, but and I thought this is just such a a king's victory because they don't want to win at the moment. They're probably better off losing, and they're going to pull this one out. And it's such a it's the most clipperiest, if that's a word, loss <laughs> of the Clippers' history because the Clippers they get they ended up. I think uh, Griffin goes to the three foul line, knocks down a couple. They sort of trade baskets. And then the Clippers had a number of chances to close it out. Chris Ball gives it to Blake Griffin. Did not have a soul on him. Long two. He passed it up. Gave it to Jamal Crawford, who was double teamed in the corner. And he chucked up a prayer, which to his credit, rimmed out. And then uh, McLemore went down the other end. Nice outlet pass. He airballed the layup. But Corley Stein was there for the putback. 1.8 seconds left. Kings lead by a point. And... The Clippers lose another heartbreaking loss, and uh, Chris Paul missed the shot at the, the buzzer, and it just it has gotten me thinking. And we want to—I don't want to get too bogged down in this today because I want to do a bit more research and talk about maybe on next week's pod. But Chris Paul's the 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 best point guard in terms of running a team. I think most people would concede in the NBA. You can have a discussion about uh, him versus Westbrook as a better player or whatever. But if you want someone to run your team, it's Chris Paul. But Having watched so much Clippers, I've lost all faith in in Chris Paul at the end of games. I'm not sure if it's just something that's seeped into our consciousness but doesn't really have um, anything in reality, like doesn't have a granny in reality. It's just a a perception thing with him at the moment. But they just look dreadful. And to the same point, before I'll throw to your reaction, with the when they played the Mavericks a couple of games ago, they also lost that one by point. They had two. Two, three chances to win. The first was a Chris Paul air ball. The second, Blake Griffin dribbled the ball off his foot straight out of bounds. And the third one, uh, Chris Paul just sort of dribbled around and threw up a prayer at the end of the shot clock. And that was the, that was the game. They lose by a point. And you just think, surely with the best point guard in the NBA, they can be running better plays. I don't know if it's uh, Doc Rivers coaching and or they've just been, around, been together too long and there's a staleness there with the team. I'm not sure what it is, but it, it's, it's been fascinating to me the amount of late-game collapses that this team has had given the roster construction is such that their point guard's their best player. I think it's all those things. I think there's this is year six. They are exactly who they are. They're not going to be anything different. There's not another gear for them in the playoffs. This is who they are. And this is a team where it's perfect, right? It's perfectly almost more Doc Rivers to me than it is Clippers-y. Those are synonymous now. As you you said it as well, he cleared the bench. You know, Brandon Bass was getting run with, you know, with Wes Johnson there because the game was over. And then suddenly the game's not over. And I go, that is a classic 
So when you put Brandon Bass and Wes Johnson, and the guys are going to walk off the court and you're high-fiving, you're done, right? Your competitive juices, the adrenaline stops. So you've, you've seen it. You've probably felt it even in our, you know, in, in your rec league, you know, game's over. And so you check out. Emotions stop. You kick back. And you just go through the motions. And that's what the Clippers did. They went through the motions for the last four minutes. And you hate to say in their defense, but in their defense, if any one of those shots falls, they still win the game, right? So if just one of those Crawford jumpers goes in, we're not having the conversation. So I'm not ready to kind of, you know, uh, I'm open to the data, but I'm not ready to start labeling them something around um, – you know, crunch time failures in the same way. But I was, but my eyeballs told me last season watching Westbrook and Durant in crunch time, there was confusion. There was debate. There was uncertainty. There was indecision watching KD and Russ in crunch time in the playoffs, right? It was almost awkward. I think the whole planet goes, oh my God, these two brilliant players and they can't figure it out. LA doesn't have that problem. Shots just didn't fall. And they let their guard down, and Langston Galloway throws one from 29 feet, and a, a you know a miracle ball gets saved with three seconds on the shot clock that bounces out to him, and he drills another one. And Buddy Heald also had a tipped offensive rebound get ticked out to him. So there was a bit of a you could just sort of feel the Clips stop playing. Now I'm not making excuses, nor do I think that's healthy. That's just who they are. That's they have so much talent. And they, they just don't give effort for 48 minutes. And that's the Clippers. Well, I think the the thing for them is it is a recurring theme. I mean, you go back to the OKC series they lost and they had a massive lead in that game late uh, and threw it away. Obviously, the Houston series well, the is Houston the one series, that everyone yeah. brings up. Uh, I'm not convinced, even without the injuries, I don't think they would have beaten Portland last year. I mean, everyone says it's a fait accompli. They would have beaten Portland if Portland had go down. That was a 2-2 series. That was a very close series. And we saw Portland pushed... Golden State in the next round, so that was that when they push overs themselves. Uh, so and and as I said, it's just a recurring theme with this team. The man and even against Golden State, on a number of occasions they've had big leads and just fallen to pieces in the last quarter. Um, yeah. So and yet I still can't get out of my mind how well they played in the first round series to beat the Spurs uh, a couple of years ago. So you, you know, you don't, I, I suspect if we dig into the stats, it's not going to look as bad as what our perceptions are. I think that's yeah. that's that's my suspicion. But I'd like to look into I, the stats to, to just sort of confirm or deny um, what I'm seeing with my eyes. And I, and I don't trust this team, even if they're up ten in a big game. I don't trust this team whatsoever. I don't. I actually don't understand it because I'm. I'm with you. I go. Chris Paul is as competitive and as exacting. He's not quite Ray Allen exacting, but he's exacting. Right. He's a perfectionist. I literally don't understand why they don't haven't. They haven't developed a killer instinct because that would seem to be Chris Paul's personality. It's definitely not Blake Griffin's personality, right? But that is. But um. But that's what I understand about Chris Paul. Is he's got that killer instinct, but the team doesn't. Perhaps it's part of the fact that DeAndre can't play late in games because of the lack of free throws. Blake's lost a bit of the – he can't jump out of the gym anymore. So he's had to kind of adapt a bit of that face-up game. So maybe his confidence is down 5%. I don't 
you know, little glimmers of doubt when he gets, you know, I saw him get chased down blocked by Giannis. You know, you'd never see Blake Griffin get chased down blocked before. So I wonder if there's just, if they've just kind of comes to grips with they are who they are, which is a really talented four seed who probably, that's maybe their ceiling. Their floor is really high and their ceiling is really low. So look, no one's going to want to play them because they are so talented in the starting five, but no one's losing sleep over them. I, think, I don't even think, yeah. I think part of the problem is because they have had some playoff collapses, once you have that playoff collapse, you then, it doesn't matter what you do the next regular season. You've, it's like, you've got to show me in the playoffs. I don't believe anything this team does until I see it in the playoffs. And they started this year. I thought they were the best team this year in the first 20 games. They were. They, they were, were amazing. They were balling. I mean, they beat the Spurs, uh, and it was not even a close contest. And the Spurs have lost a few disappointing ones this year. I haven't seen them run off the court yet. And they just ran them off the court, and I thought, well, this, this team might be legit for once. But then they've had the ups and downs and the bumps along the way, and they just don't seem like they're going to bounce back this time. But again, with the Clippers, it's like, let, show me in the playoffs. I think it doesn't matter what you do. And I think that yeah. maybe there's a psychological uh, effect that that has on them, this a fear of failure. And they get in those games and they start playing not to lose rather than playing. I mean, Warriors go up 10, they're looking to go up 20. Whereas... You know, yes. Clippers go up 10, they're hoping to win by three. And I think that's the different mentality and that's something that they need to somehow snap out of. And some, some part of me, I would like to see it because I, I do have a grudging respect for Chris Paul. So I would like to see him get some more success in the playoffs than what he probably does have um, to this point in his career. So yeah. we'll, we'll see how that plays out. Now, now, another team that they are who they are, seemingly would be the Milwaukee Bucks because just as we get excited about them, just as we're ready to anoint them and say maybe they could make a playoff run, they come out and lay a bit of an egg against the Chicago Bulls this morning. But you watch that match, maybe I'm being a bit harsh, I didn't see the game, I only saw the score and my eyes sort of bulged out of my head when I saw the margin of victory. But was it just one of them nights for the Bucks, or one of them days I should say for the Bucks? Um, no, it was, this actually, believe it or not, um, this this game is about Chicago. So the first quarter was a pretty high scoring, you know, 31-29, normal kind of back and forth, high energy first quarter, and Giannis doing Giannis-y things and, and the rest of it, and Butler hitting shots and things. And then and the Bucks actually had a 12-point lead. And then all of a sudden what happened, that the Bulls couldn't miss. The Bulls shot, they were shooting like 64% through three periods. Miritich hit his first six three-pointers. The first time this season, he's hit six in a game, and he went six for six. And um, the lesser Lopez was eight for 11 from the floor. And he's hitting, and these aren't inside dominant over Greg Monroe's. He's shooting these 16 footers, you know, flat footies, like, just like his twin brother. Are they twins? Or are they just brothers? They're twins, aren't they? They're twins. They're twins. Yeah, yeah. So shooting these 18 footer, and just everything. Everything went in, and it so happened to be one of those games where he probably has eight games a year. I'm being generous. Where Rajon Rondo looked like Rajon Rondo from 2010. The dude was going up for boards. He's hitting jumpers. Like for whatever the fucking reason, Rajon Rondo had. I don't. I don't forget the box score. I think he had eight rebounds, eight assists. Yeah. You know, 15 points. He just. He was everywhere. Yeah, and 18 he was, he was points. Tough. Yeah, 18 points, nine rebounds, nine four, assists. 
And so I go, it was a little bit, this game was all about the Bulls. They were just clicking. All the shots went in. Rondo's playing like he's drink from the fountain of youth this morning. Butler's doing Butler things. And um, yeah, so I wasn't too, that's one of those games, right? You saw the, Sp- the Spurs lost to the Bucks with Michael Beasley, right? You just kind of go, it's one of those days where the, the, the basketball gods have decided that, you know what, today is Michael Beasley day. And so you, you don't put a ton of stock in the Spurs losing to the Bucks, led by Michael Beasley. It's kind of one of those days with the Bucks. It's unfortunate because they could have everyone else is still losing in the East, and they could have been sole possession of of the fifth seed. But um, yeah, not a game I, I'm too worried about actually. So, but I guess that leads me to the East now is this super clustered. Um, what's interesting now because Atlanta, you can't talk about the East without the, I guess the depressing. Um, plummet to gosh how far can they fall atlanta hawks now with Millsap hurt who did they lose to today they lose to brooklyn they today? lost to brooklyn it wasn't close it wasn't close um yeah they could miss the playoffs and i don't and i think they're almost favorite to miss the playoffs if Millsap doesn't come back which is i think that'd be even a greater indictment than you know the clippers going on a bit of a funk where you go there is no excuse for okay i know Excuse me, Millsap is a bit binged up. But you've got Hardaway Jr., Schroeder, and and Dwight Howard on your team, right? And you, go, you stack that up against Indiana and Milwaukee and whoever else. And go, it's still a fairly – yeah, know, but they should be winning games. But Their bench is an absolute disaster. Uh, we were well, talking about that Washington not, bench. Yeah. It is, uh, yeah. Their best player on the bench is Chris Humphreys, and it's not particularly close. Yeah, um, although uh, Cephalosia wasn't playing today, in, in fairness, he's probably their best bench player. If he comes off the bench, he may even well, start. Normally, I think Lily Saver may come off the bench. Well, normally. Daz, here's my. You, you didn't think we could challenge the Jan Mahimi, right? <laughs> so here was my. I was holding this one. I'm. I'm glad we talked about the Hawks, and Brooklyn today. But did you see the? Um, so the Hawks lost by 15, right? And you said their bench is abysmal, and it is. Do you know who had the most bench minutes on their team today? I'm not going to make you answer that. That's Jay Calderon, Jose mm-hmm. Calderon, who was what was picked up by Golden State, then released by Golden State and set adrift. So a guy who's kind of unwanted by everyone is a 35-year-old. Well, he played 21 minutes today, more minutes than anyone off the Atlanta bench. He scored one point in 21 minutes in a game the Hawks lost by 15 and he was a plus 10. <laughs> <laughs> so like, oh, if you ever thought, it's the new, the Jan Mahinmi, Jose Calderon stat of plus minus, I go, I don't know if I've ever seen a team where they've a bench player score one point, they lose by 15 and he goes a plus 10. And there wasn't a single other bench player who had a, um, a positive plus minus. Anyway, well, Dunleavy was minus 25 in 17 minutes. Like I know. Well, <laughs> on the same bench. It's could, like, <laughs> if we had a, we could have a pod on the most pissed off NBA players. I go, and I go, good for fucking you, Dunleavy, that douchebag. When he he pulled his stunt on Giannis, you know, he tried to, <laughs> right. you know, he he tried to, you know, he thought he played for the Spurs or something, you know, in two thousand and seven. He pulls his stunt, you know, clotheslining Giannis, and then anyway, I, I'm glad for Dunleavy's misery. So talk about a pissed off dude. <laughs> well, let's, for you. let's talk a bit more about the Eastern Conference because I want to. Uh, I was thinking about this 
uh, over the weekend. I, I thought LeBron, when everyone talks about, you know, who's going to meet in the finals. Obviously, we think it's going to be Cleveland and, and Golden State. I'm still of that opinion. Um, but Cleveland are looking more and more shaky as the days go on. And they're now even with the Celtics for the number one seed. I don't think they necessarily care that much about whether they get the one seed. And we spoke about that before. We don't want to go in that wormhole again. But uh, I sort of feel like until I see someone beat LeBron, I, can, I just can't imagine anyone other than his his team's coming out. We've seen it now. It's been uh, six years in a row that he's come out of the East. And really, they haven't been challenged in that time. I mean, Indiana took them to seven games. Um, incidentally, the only team I ever thought that may have a good chance of beating was the Hawks two years ago, and that was because the Cavs had so many injuries heading into that series. But the question I wanted to pose to you tonight was, if someone said to us now, we've you know, Marty McFly and Doc Brown walk in and say, we've been in DeLorean, we've gone six <laughs> months in the future. And you won't believe it, Golden State and Cleveland both miss the finals. Who would you... But they say, we can't tell you anything else. We haven't got the sports almanac with us or anything like that. So <laughs> who would you be putting your money on to say, this is going to be our finals matchup, knowing that neither of those two teams are here? And we'll start in the East. Um, if, if Cleveland get that bit rocky, they fall over. Who's your bet? to maybe either take them out or take out the East altogether? Well, it's a short conversation because it's, in my opinion, still it's Cleveland and everyone else. And the everyone else is basically Boston, Washington, and Toronto, and then literally everyone else. Yeah. So it's obviously down to those three teams. Um, I think I'm in the I'm in the Daz, the Darren Clear camp here, where they have the best defense and probably the best coach that being Boston, but I still don't believe that they can generate enough offense. If, if Isaiah gets a decent defender on him, I don't like Boston's chances. So my money, believe it or not, would be on would be the Wizards. You know my opinion of Toronto. Toronto doesn't look right. Uh, even if Lowry comes back, I don't trust they're going to get it together. So for me, it's almost an easy. For me, it's the Wizards um, mm. because – they're, they're, that's a. They get the, again. We've talked about if you you came from Neptune and watched NBA basketball and you go, what does professional basketball look like? And you look at Washington starting five, that's as close to kind of the Wizards and the Clippers are my two. That's what a, a perfect NBA starting five looks like. Who's yours in the East? James? I think it's the Wizards. Right. I, I, I'll yeah. still make, I'll make a case in a second for the reps, but I think with. Um, we if and we saw when they I, I watched the game where they beat the Cavs uh, over the weekend, and if they get anything out of their bench, they're almost unstoppable at the moment. And that, but that's a big if because you got guys like Bogdanovich, Jan Mihimni, Kelly Oubre. Kelly Oubre got sixteen points and really played well against the Cavs. But it's not something you're going to rely on night to night. But I think Scott Brooks has been smart in the Calipari way, whereas he's just seeing who's got it tonight on my bench. And you might see times where Bogdanovich plays five, ten minutes because he just doesn't have it, whereas Ubre's out there. He's taking offensive boards, getting put back twos, things like that, um, knocking down a few outside shots himself. So he's going to ride the hot hand off off that bench and hope that one of, you know, J. Smith well, or Mahimni or Ubre or someone brings it night to night and maybe, you know, that, that, that can take them because, and, and this is the other point I'd make about the Wizards, 
we know they can perform in the playoffs. We know John Wall's not going to be scared off by the playoffs. We've seen these guys perform well in the playoffs themselves, and they probably should have beaten Atlanta a couple of years ago. And who knows what they do against the Cavs themselves that year uh, when Paul Pierce was, was pulling all those shots out of his backside. So you know Beal and Wall aren't going to be scared by the moment in yeah. the playoffs. I think they're going to bring it. Um, Gortut's the guy that worries me. I just that—that's the position I'm like. Uh, just not. I'd like to see an upgrade there, I guess. But Markeith Morris is playing really well. Although Porter, we've touched on him a few times, so certainly uh, they would—they—they'd be where my money would go. Yeah, there for me is like the high risk, high reward. They're playing playoff like rotations, perhaps out of necessity because they don't trust a lot of the bench players, as you alluded to. So you go, they've got their seven or their eight, and they go, they're getting ready for playoff basketball. And you saw that the other day when they beat Cleveland in Cleveland quite handily. It actually wasn't very – they pulled away in the end, which is unusual for a game featuring a healthy Irving, uh, a newly healthy Kevin Love who played 33 minutes, and LeBron played 41 more minutes. So you can't tell me Cleveland didn't want to win that game. Now, do I believe Cleveland threw everything at them? I do not. I believe Cleveland has, like we all probably believe, they've just going to, you know, stay healthy for the next two weeks and start their play in the playoffs. But, but I think that meant a lot to Washington to go into Cleveland and win that game. Well, they um, believe now. So John Wall, he's got yeah. zero respect. He's probably got the amount of respect he should have for Kyrie Irving on the defensive end, which is zero. Irving was terrible. He was Irving didn't pass the ball. He didn't make a shot. I go. But when Irving, it's interesting that you say that. I go, when Kyrie doesn't hit, he was 8 for 23, 1 for 7 from 3, you know, has the ball a lot, only has four assists. To be fair, he only had one turnover, but he was, he looked terrible. He looked terrible. LeBron looked frustrated. So I thought that was an interesting game. Look, I'm sure they've already forgotten about it, but um, now your question was who besides from Cleveland? I think we're both answering it's Washington. And I think that gave the Wiz a bunch of confidence. I think that was the, it's the first time they beat him this year. Yeah, it is. That's, so Cleveland won yeah, the other they two had that matchups. Close so. game, that ridiculous game where LeBron took six steps and didn't score for a travel. Was a, yeah, that was an awesome game, though. Um, but, but yeah, uh, that's right. Look, it'll be a great <laughs> right. match. I, I really want to see it as the uh, as the Eastern Conference Finals. To be honest, so in some ways, I hope Boston sort of falls into that too. We get a Boston Washington series. Maybe Washington wear black. Every game, every game's a funeral um, yeah. for the Celtics. And then, because I wouldn't mind seeing the Raptors and, Cel- and Cavs again. I, I, I'm still a believer that we haven't. I, I just want to see the Raps, and I hope we get to see Kyle Lowry at his best come the plus. We've spoken about that before. Not not too much point rehashing yeah. that. Let's wait and see once yeah. Kyle Lowry comes back. On the Western Conference side, I think we're going to disagree here. Um, I could. Yeah. I think the the thing about Golden State, well, how do you beat them? I think there's obviously two schools of thought. And this goes back somewhat to our analytical discussion. Are you going to beat them in a shootout? So are you just going to go in and say we're going to we're going to make forty threes and hope you make thirty or some ridiculous number like that? And that's obviously the Houston uh, mode, if you like. Or are you going to try and say we're going to try and hold these guys to under hundred points? get them in a slow, methodical, grinded-out sort of game. And that's the Utah Spurs model. Um, I don't give anyone else a chance. Um, I, I think 
It's funny, I think Denver mm. Denver got a puncher's chance of beating anyone night tonight. I don't know what to make of that team anymore. Um, but there's no way they're winning a seven-game series against them. But um, I, I think you could... It wouldn't surprise me in the Denver series where you go, hang on, four games and it's 2-2, two, two, and you're like, what? Has Denver got a chance here or something? And, and not one of the games has been close, and it's just... They're just a strange team at the moment. They probably won't even make the playoffs, but anyway. Um, so I think, to me, it comes down to Houston, Spurs, or Utah. Um, and I could see, you know, if if Warriors have got to go through Utah and the Spurs back-to-back, I think that's going to be a real grind for them and a real slog. And I could see one of those two maybe knocking them off um, in, in time. Probably not Utah. Utah probably don't have enough offense. But uh, if they're if they're ground down a little bit from that Utah series, and then you're going to meet the Spurs in the next round, obviously at this stage I'm still tipping the Warriors. I think they're prohibitive favourites. I think they're going to win. But if you told me someone else was going to, going to go forward into the uh, NBA Finals out of the West, other than them, I'd be a little bit excited because I'd probably lean towards the Spurs um, at the moment. But I have a feeling you may have a different answer there. I do. I and I, um, I just don't believe old teams without enough offense can do it. And it's and so I go. My only answer from the West. So my my answer is Wizards Rockets. Is if he if he told me Golden State and Cleveland don't make it, it's it's Wizards Rockets, and it's it's mostly the it's mathematics and it's the youth, and um, if we had a even a 36-year-old Timmy Duncan, I would probably say um, I would lean towards the super superstar, who's Kawhi, the two-way superstar, not the one-way superstar in James Harden. But Powell and LaMarcus and the rest of the big boys, I'm like, oh, they're just not going to get in the way when the, you know, especially if Kevin Durant comes back. I just don't see him keeping pace no matter how phenomenal Kawhi plays, I just don't see him keeping pace. Whereas Houston can punch him in the mouth by, um, by beating them at their game and getting up 10, 15 points and having a relentless offensive assault that doesn't ever let Golden State off the mat. I just don't think San Antonio or Utah can generate 48 minutes of pressure with enough at enough positions to keep um, to keep Golden State from getting their shots. Well, here's the, the thing number... I'd say. Is... So that's what I. That's what I think. Yeah. In defense of your pick, Houston. Here's what I would say. With Golden State, I think you can slow the pace down. So if they play Utah, they're going to be grinding out games. I think you know it wouldn't surprise me if it's going to be like a hundred to eighty-six or ninety-four, eighty-two. These sort of scores where it's not going to be a track meet. Whereas if you play Houston, it doesn't matter who's who's playing, it's going to be a track meet and it's going to be 130 to 120, these high scoring games because they will enforce their style of play on whoever they're playing and if they're hitting their shots, they're going to win. And I think why that's important in some ways is I could see Golden State coming out of a Utah series and just having a maybe a game or so they get used to the, the pace of playing a Houston, which is a completely different team than playing Utah in the previous round. So maybe Houston go in, steal a game in um, in Oakland and then hold home court for the rest of the way. Um, so I could that's that's the argument I guess I would make if I'm looking at Houston. 
um, and the one thing that Dan Tony brings to the table is you're going to play his style. Now, the Warriors won't care. They'll play his style, no problems. But the Spurs won't be as comfortable as we know playing that sort of style. And really, even though the Spurs have, have beaten Houston this year, They've they've pulled two games straight out of their backsides, um, and Houston have really had good leads in both of those games and, and blew it down the stretch. Um, so I don't think Houston are going to have any great fear about playing the Spurs either. Um, but I, I, so I, I think there's an argument on both sides. I think the Spurs have got to me a, a game plan that I think is better suited to trying to beat the Warriors. Now, do they have enough offense to do it? Probably not. Um, but again, we're making the assumption that the Warriors do lose. Who are they more likely to lose to? The team that can slow them down, get them into a you know, more of a half-court game, or the team that's going to go in there and have a shootout with them? And I, my feeling is you're more likely to beat them trying to do what the Spurs are doing than trying to do what Houston are doing. But let's wait and see. You know, Spurs will have to get past Houston first if that's going to happen, and, and that's going to be a fascinating series in its own right. It looks like it's, you know, it's as predicted. I don't think, you don't think the Clippers are going to fall, do you? They're going to, you think they'll hang on to the five seed? Oh, they're, game and a, they're a game and a half up on OKC, but they're even in the lost column. That's what's interesting. Mm. So Clip, Clippers have played 75 games, you know, um, so OKC have three games in hand. They've only played 72 so, well, if you can't beat the Kings at home, and I mean, I know it was an aberration type of a game and a, and a hundred things happened that, that wouldn't normally, but if you can't beat the Kings at home, it's a little bit like looking at Atlanta and saying, if you you can't beat Brooklyn, who are you going to beat? Um, yeah. They are, but then again, having said that, they did beat um, Utah quite comfortably um, in, their, in their game before today. So, you know, there's obviously a bit of um, variance in the results at this time of year. I still feel like Clippers will probably hold on. I'm not. I'm not completely sold on OKC night tonight. I think Russ is going to start ch- really chasing some stats as if he hasn't been already, um, and that may cost them some win. I mean, did you see the stat line he put up today against Houston? Like just how many shots? What 39-13-13 was it? Yeah. Oh, just unbelievable. Him and Harden just as having a competition circuit, hog the ball the most. Did you see what happened afterwards? Where they started, there Houston was trolling Westbrook they, oh, on, on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. So they basically they put a graph up of, of James Harden that says, you know, literally. So this is on the Houston Rockets team Twitter site from a team Twitter account, saying that you know triple doubles are just numbers. We'll take the wins, baby, or something like that. So yeah, I actually thought Westbrook had a he was pretty efficient. 39 points on 24 shots, 39, 13, and 11. Sounds pretty good. But, uh, yeah, a bit yeah, harsh on Harden. He only shot 15 times, but I think they uh, they had the game well in hand at halftime, so he would have been in more distribute distributor mode. Yeah, uh, 12 more assists, mate. Yeah. And there's there's Tony too. Still only played eight guys in a blowout win. So that... Well, Anderson's hurt. That's what's interesting. I don't know what that's... Can Lou Williams with... Sort of all world Lou Williams today, seven for eight from three point land, yeah, 31 15, points yeah. in 31 minutes. Brilliant. That's, that's so awesome. And what a great trade, right? Um, oh, uh, that's just a bad matchup. I mean, okay, so I think what we've learned about oh, them is they have no matchup. hope against, uh, and they would actually they match up a lot better on Utah than, and the Spurs than they do on Houston and Golden State. 
and no one matches up well on Golden State. But um, if if they're playing terms, they're going to have this sort of shooter out style. They're, they're not in the ball game, so um, I think we've learned that. So everyone's sort of salivating over the three, three, six matchup of OKC and Houston. I think we can pour a bit of cold water on that. Um, yeah. After seeing that today, so yeah. the next thing I, w- I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, or we wanted to touch on Tankathon and look at uh, where the teams are at the moment. I've actually got a mock draft up in front of me as well, which sort of gives out where the teams are sitting. And, and the Sacramento win was a big one today because that they're obviously in the conversation for the sort of four or five spot. They do have that pick swap hanging over their head with Philly anyway. Um, that, that sort of knocked them down to the number seven spot. And, it, and that's how important it's getting there between Orlando, Philadelphia, New York, Sacramento. Um, any of those teams win a game, and we've seen the Knicks sort of shut Mellow down for a couple of games. That might actually help them win at this stage. I'm not sure. But, um, so, yeah. Burn. <laughs> so you got all these teams. And, you know, we've seen Philly knock off Chicago. We saw the Kings win today. So um, it's a really interesting dynamic playing out to see who's going to fall in the four spot. Um, and obviously this is important because that's not a lottery dictated position. So if you fall in that four spot, you're going to be ahead of the team unless they win the lottery ahead of you type of thing. Um from there so um have you got any sort of feel about where this is going to end up um and and who's it more important for i guess it's most important for the lakers to just make sure they keep losing but the, there's no there's no risk oh, of that not happening at the moment it's a factor of 10 to 1 that's by far the most important for la because they lose their their 19 pick as well right so this is is absolutely vital they keep losing and what's interesting is that um they go and beat. I mean, they killed the Timberwolves the other night. That's gonna, that's gonna kill them. Like, well, they suddenly trot out and they, they whooped the Timberwolves, right? Jordan Clarkson, I think, went, went a bit apeshit. But if it's a big difference, it's almost ten percentage point difference between the number two slot and the number three slot. And meaning number one is the number one pick, which is most likely Brooklyn, and that obviously conveys to Boston. So when I say number one, number two, number two is the Lakers at the moment. But Phoenix is dropping like a rock, right? Phoenix are playing loose, and now that you know they've put all their vets, you know Chandler and Brandon Knight are on the bench, just like Mozgov and and Deng are for LA. Now they're kind of dinged up and banged up and resting resting their rookies, and so I think Phoenix is going to keep on keeping on. So that's going to be really interesting, two three, and you can believe me that the Lakers are desperate for that um, to keep their pick. That is that's so vital for them. And you're right. The other interesting one is the Knicks, Sixers, Orlando, and Sacramento basically have the same record up until today with Sacramento's miracle. Um, and I guess it's maybe the, the saving grace for the Sacramento organization is that this, you know, grand fleecing that Hinky did on them with the pick swaps it's looking like they're going to finish quite similarly in the stats. So that actually won't make a huge difference. You know, the swap, you know, at the minute be five versus seven and the ping pong balls could go either way, but you know, it doesn't seem like Sacramento's picks going to fall too far. Mm. Um, You know, with the swap, Um, the more interesting thing is, I guess we keep talking about the East, which is the um, boy, Charlotte, you know, they had a win today, but, we killed them last week, right? So Charlotte's done. 
and Detroit. God, I don't know what happened. This is not Stan Van Gundy. So talking about tankathon, they're definitely not tanking at all. But they're you know lost seven out of ten, lost three in a row. Stan Van Gundy came out in the press trying to motivate the team, saying basically what the fuck is going on, and they're just not responding. So talk about a team who in the offseason would have had serious contemplations about how to architect their roster. And they've said, you know what? We've got a team here. This is a Stan Van Gundy team with Drummond and Reggie Jackson and Marcus Morris, etc. cetera. Um, and for them to be five games under 500, and again, another ordinary Eastern Conference, you know, what a depressing uh, accidental tankathon happening in Detroit. Um, yeah, well, he tried the bench. Reggie Jackson put his Smith in. That didn't really work. It, it really is just Drummond and Zach Lowe wrote, wrote a nice little piece about this, um, just talking about how Drummond's just afraid to attack the basket because if he gets fouled, he's shooting under 40%. So when you've got a big guy that can't really shoot from the outside and all he's trying to do is shoot these sort of fadeaway hook shots um, and that he can't hit and aren't high-percentage shots for him, yet they keep feeding him because if you don't feed the boost, he's not going to play defense down the other end sort of thinking. Um, it's, it's just not working in Detroit. So they've got some big decisions to make in the off-season, which is something that we, um, that we spoke about um, in an earlier pod. But I think the big question for me is, I mean, I'm looking at the mock draft now and I'm seeing there's five of the top ten picks are slated to be point guards. Yet you've got a lot of those teams that would already appear to be set at point guard and have a point guard. So do you look at it and say, we're going to look at drafting for need or do you just draft the best player available at that spot? And obviously, you know, you're not, maybe we're not talking about Ball and, and Fultz who are, you know, generational superstars. That, that's certainly the hype on them at the moment. But the guy like Deon, Darren Fox who we spoke about before um, – or even Dennis Smith. I mean, if you and they, and they got Minnesota slated to take Dennis Smith down there. I mean, I'm not that familiar with his game, but they've already got Rubio. They drafted Chris Dunn last year, and they got Tyus Jones. What would be the point of them taking another point guard um, at this yeah. stage? You know, so I think that's going to be the big. And, and we talk about Phoenix. Phoenix got Eric Bledsoe. Bledsoe's not that old. He's uh, having a nice year this year. Um, What's what's his future if they get one of the top picks? Obviously, they're going to take one of Ball or Fultz, you would imagine. Although this mock draft, interesting enough, has Josh, Josh Jackson going number one. Um, maybe that's because the Celtics are picking there and they're thinking that they don't want to um, pick a point guard Isaiah Thomas there. But I, the, my understanding is that they won't be looking anywhere other than uh, Ball or Fultz at this point. Um, so what's, what's your sort of take on it? Should be should teams be just going, you know what, best player available, we'll work it out later, or do you actually need to look at your roster construction, particularly in the lottery lottery picks? I mean, obviously, as the draft goes it, on, you can think more about need and that. Well, it just depends on where you fall. I'm just, when I'm, I'm not the expert, but everything I hear and everything I read is that this is now, um, this is a Fultz, it's Fultz and Ball are one and two, but there is some conversation where you say Josh Jackson, excuse me, Josh Jackson, right, the Kansas super athlete, very Wiggins-like, but he's got a broken jumper. But he's a phenomenal, phenomenal athlete. And so the question becomes, if you are set at point guard, right, and you look at a team like, um, well, who's set at point guard? Well, like Boston, right? 
Boston's got Isaiah and Avery Bradley and a whole bunch of backcourt options. You know, it's pretty obvious that, not pretty obvious, question, would they entertain a Josh Jackson? You know, if they get that top pick because he quote-unquote fits better, and which means then they are they then marrying themselves to Isaiah Thomas? So it feels like it's the Fultz ball and Jackson one, two, three, and then it's kind of anyone's guess in that four, kind of four to ten is there's a lot of people are not high on Dennis Smith at NC State. He's young, he's small, you know, didn't play at a great program, probably didn't develop a lot of great habits. It's a lot of people not very high on Dennis Smith, so I could see him dropping. I could see guys like Fox coming up, and it's I guess the point is there's a lot of subjectivity, right, in terms of even the the draft Knicks in that four till ten. So if it falls out, let's just play for a moment. It falls out. Boston gets the first pick, Lakers second pick, and Phoenix the third pick. It'll all be dependent upon what Boston does, to say the least. Now everyone sort of says Markov. Fultz has by far the highest floor. Like there's some people who think he could have played in the NBA quite easily this year and started like he's that polished of a player. So that's a tough one. If I'm Danny Ainge, I still have to believe Ainge is going to be a BAP best available player. So it's, I think it's a little, it's interesting for us to kind of create our, you know, what if outsider view of, Oh, Josh Jackson fits better in Boston. Um, but I just I just don't believe Danny Ainge is going to build his franchise around a 30-year-old Isaiah Thomas and pay him $25 million a year. I, don't th- I just don't think he's going to do it. I think he wants to compete for the next 10 years with, um, you know, with someone like a Fultz. So, um, yeah. I, I, I personally think the Lakers, want to see Josh yeah. Jackson go to Phoenix. Because I could see a, a, a five where you got Eric Bledsoe, Devin Booker, or even Tyler Eulis, Devin Booker, Josh Jackson, Marcus Chris, even if Alex Len stays around, then you go to a smaller line, bring TJ Warren in, you got Marcus Chris playing the five in sort of smaller lineups, more athletic lineups. That's well, going to be a fun team. Well, I'm, I'm actually, in for this <laughs> all those reasons, just insert Lonzo Ball. I go, imagine Lonzo Ball and Devin Booker in the backcourt. Talk about instantly filling your, your, your arena. Talk about an instant f- uh, ball who can facilitate scores like Booker and Warren. And for me, I think I mentioned this a few pods ago, was I'd like to see Phoenix shop Bledsoe. Bledsoe's had a great year. He's 27 years old. Why not give him a chance to play on a team who's closer to, a, you know, to playoff contention like a, oh, God, I don't know. Um, Detroit or or something, right? So I'd like to see them shot Bledsoe. And if they got ball or Fultz, that'd be my utopia for Phoenix. You're, uh, Josh Jackson is a super athlete. I think they've got a poor man's version of him in TJ Warren. Yeah, you he's actually a much better, he's a much better rebounder. So um, uh, look, assuming the ping pong balls, which we know won't, it'll, it'll change a lot. And, I think it's still those three are going to be the top three than kind of anyone's guest. And I'll tell you, I'm going to have a large glass of cold water over all the hype that's going about these guys because uh, after the hype I heard, and I'm not going to go in this wormhole again with Brandon Ingram, but gee, I heard so much hype about him coming out of the last draft and 
we've spoken a number of times, we've been underwhelmed, to say the least. That's not to say he's not going to have a great career, but I just think just lower expectations of these first-year guys from now until someone shows something uh, in their rookie season. You go back through the last few rookie seasons, there's not a lot there. I mean, Michael Carter-Williams was rookie of the year. Um, we're scratching our heads this year to wonder who it's probably going to be Sarge, who's been playing professional basketball for the last four years. So if we look at Draft Express, this has one one benchmark, and it's a pretty reputable one, right? Sorry, this is Tankathon. It's not Draft Express. I, I, I stand corrected. They have projected the first 18, where we keep going, the first 22 picks of the draft. The oldest player, there'll be three of the first 22 picks. Only three of those players are 20 years old. Mm. Ivan Rabb, who's 20, just turned 20. Luke Kennard, who's a sophomore, who's who's 20. He'd be turned 21 in a couple of months. And Josh Jackson, of all people, he was um, he's redshirted, right? So he's a 20-year-old he's a freshman. So you go, everyone else is 18, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19. Everyone's 19 years old, basically. So this is another point which you and I have alluded to is this one and done. Aside from perhaps Fultz and Ball and two unpredictable, a couple of others, perhaps in the late lottery, making big contributions, you can probably bet a 19-year-old player who joins the Mavericks or the Hornets or the Pistons or heck, even the Timberwolves, another 19-year-old isn't going to get tons of opportunity. And so, um, this, these you're going to have to do your your projections. You know, my, remember the four Ps. And if you're not drafting for projection, you're probably you're probably a bad GM. You're probably Ernie Grunfeld <laughs> if you're not drafting. Well, for I, like how the, do, I like the Memphis what they did with Andrew Harrison and just draft if you're going to draft a guy in the 20s even just draft him and stash him in the D league or you know maybe you do a draft and stash one of these overseas prospects and just say just go and develop your game um you know this this nonsense of starting a thon maker for three minutes and then putting him back on the bench I just scratch my head and wonder what in God's name is that doing for his development yeah um and I see it, and, and you just see it across the league. There's just rookies sitting on the bench getting DMPCDs five minutes, and you just think well, that surely that's not the best way to develop these kids. Yeah. Well, I guess what we don't see, right, which is I, and time will tell, is the, the practices and the practice habits and how intense they're going and just the instruction they get and being put in environments with, you know, all the trainers and nutritionists and the rest of it and say is it question is there any better way to do it you know i don't know is playing for the adelaide 36ers where you're making a bit of money and having fun and you know probably <laughs> tindering with really attractive australian <laughs> girls is that any better than you know what rashad vaughn's done for a couple of years in milwaukee so yeah. um i guess the thing I, i'm more i was just i was i was more interested in you think about the it's a bit of a it's strange year unless you look at who has actually drafted last year, right? With the rookie of the year conversation, you know, is the kind of the conventional top three are Joel Embiid, Dario Saric, and probably Malcolm Brogdon, a 24-year-old man, you know. He's still two years younger than Thon, but a 24-year-old man, Malcolm Brogdon, 
is in this conversation, the 30, was he drafted 35th or 36th, right? Mm. Is that he's, he's built like an NBA player. He learned how to play defense and he learned a lot of awesome habits about coaching and team philosophy and competition and, and just the, you know, how basketball was played at university of Virginia. So, so I guess the, the so what of now the next, the top 20 picks and arguably the biggest draft or the deepest draft in a long, 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 long time. I have a feeling we're going to have the same conversation 12 months from now. We're going to go, Oh, Holy cow. Right. I don't know. Fultz and ball are amazing. And then, wow, look at what happened to blank. Monk is playing four minutes a game. Laurie Markkinen hasn't, He's playing like Jakob Pertl minutes, you know. He's not doing anything. Or Justin Patton or, you know, Miles Bridges can't get the floor. No, jo- Jonathan Isaac, boy, he's no Justice Winslow. I have a feeling because they're, they're children. They're between 19 and 20 years old. Mm-hmm. So I'm, well, I guess I'm making, I'm making the argument for if you're drafting anywhere in the lottery, you swing for the fences. And so your, your early question – was do you draft you know for kind of not you didn't say need but for fit or do you sort of draft best available if you're not drafting the best available based on your projections however you see a guy developing you're falling behind you're you're missing the whole point oh my point i guess is just more looking at the particularly in the point guards i mean if i'm in the same i've got three good point guards already and i just drafted one am i really going to go out and draft another one this year I just don't see any point in that. I mean, unless that guy is just so far and above and away better than the next shooting guard or small forward or something like that that's there. Um, I just can't see the sense in that personally. But I see. Yeah. Well, don't you think, though, if they win the lottery, you have to draft oh, or ball, right? Then it's a different story. Right. But they're, 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 as I said, if you take them two out of the equation, I'm not sure from what I've read, and I'm certainly no expert myself, but from what I've seen of these other guys, um, it's just like, well, I don't think any of them are that good that you're just going to say, well, we have to take him ahead of, you know, players A, B and C that might come after that that actually better fits for you even going forward because it's not like they've got old point guards either. I mean, Tyus Jones and, and Chris Dunn, I could see a scenario where Chris Dunn, you would have been hoping when you're drafting last year, he's a, you know, a long-time point guard for that, that team and I think Tyus Jones could be a nice backup for a number of years so um, and then and the final point I'd make on this is I think we all need to adjust our thinking from these rookies and just be patient now we're seeing you know Carl Anthony Towns having a real breakout year in Minnesota not that he was at any stage disappointing but he's certainly taken it to another level but probably an even more a better player to look at is Noah Vonley in Portland because he's finally starting to show something about what they would have expected when Charlotte drafted him. Um, and there was a, some high talk about him um, when he was drafted a couple of years ago. And it's only now that he's starting to actually show some skills to say, oh, this guy could actually be um, a reasonable rotation player, a starter on, on Portland, um, and give you some good minutes. He's never going to be a superstar, but I don't think that was ever the expectation for him, but he's developing now into a nice NBA player. Um, so maybe we need to just sit back with a lot of those players and say, you know what, we need to wait two, three years minimum before we actually see anything um, from these guys. And that's where, I, if I'm an NBA GM, I'm looking at how can I 
um, accelerate that development process in the most um, efficient manner. And to me, getting them into the D League, depending on your D League setup, not all, not all teams have a have an actual D League setup like the teams like the Spurs and the Nets have, um, but and, and Memphis have as well. So if you don't have that D League setup, it might not be as easy as saying you're going to do that. But um, that's why, to me, I'd be making sure I had a D League team, making sure that team had the same philosophy as what we're trying to build at the NBA level, um, and then sort of taking it forward from there and seeing how much how much more effectively can we develop these players, and then seeing what other teams have done. I think there's a real argument that that could be the case. Yeah, look, I'm I, I certainly Buck going to be an example because they're just going to open their they're like I know the 25th or 26th team, so quite late to the game, opening up a D League team. But that's going to be interesting for me to watch how they they approach that. I'm not, and I'm also guess not the I'm perhaps a bit of a talent talent's going to win out kind of philosophy where. How often will the D League, you know, develop you a player, you know, that turns into a rotation type that you couldn't do in a thon maker way, ten minutes a game, at the professional level? Because I guess I'm just I don't know because right? because my team doesn't have it. So I'll be honest, I haven't studied studied D League too much, but it's hard for me to imagine that if I'm thon maker and I'm traveling with the team. And, you know, six times a year we've got stuff set up where J-Kid's old pal, Kevin Garnett, and I get, you know, special one-on-one two-hour sessions with him, you know, on a, on a monthly basis. And in learning in that environment with their trainers 24-7, I go, what is the gap between that world versus getting 30 minutes of playing time in a wide-open Fort Wayne Hornets game or whatever the hell the Fort Wayne team is called? So I – is is the D League a little bit more like Las Vegas Summer League, where you're getting to play? But is your is your practice as purposeful, purposeful? Is your development as purposeful? Are you watching what good 82 game habits are looking like, right, in terms of fitness and life and that sort of stuff? And I I don't know. I actually don't know. But I think that's perhaps where, almost relating back to where we need to weave some analytics into this is you can bet there's teams that have data on this and have their own philosophies of development on what's better. Is it getting 30 minutes a game in the D league or is it, you know, getting six minutes a game for 50 games or whatever it is, but being, having access to all the greatest coaches and training staffs in the world. Well, the, the Spurs do it um, in, in this sense. So they have the same philosophy, same sort of system set up with their D league team. They cut Danny Green twice out of the team altogether. They threw him down to the D-League a few times. They're ready to give up on the guy. We've seen he's now one of the better 3-and-D players in the league, uh, at least in my opinion. We saw Corey Joseph went down to the D-League for a number of years. He's now a very important piece um, within the Toronto Raptors. Murray's spent time there this year. He's looked good since coming back. So I think if you get that D-League set up right, and that's where the analytics will come in to say, what is the best way to set up the D-League? But to me... Um, there's there's no substitute for playing. There really isn't. To getting out in the court, being part of the system, saying this is what we want this guy to do. These are the aspects of his game we want him to work on, and that's what we're going to use it for. And I think 
the Spurs are doing it right. I think Memphis are doing it right. I think the Nets are really going to be focusing in on trying to do things with their D-League team because they need to accelerate the development of some of the rookies that they're suggesting. So I think we probably don't have enough data on it now to say there's a definite way of doing it. Um, but I think in years to come, we're going to have more and more data saying, OK, this is probably um, the better way of doing it. Uh, and I wanted to lead that into our discussion about one guy that is going to be taken in the later rounds of the draft and maybe he will find himself in the D-League next year is another young Australian player in uh, Jonah Bolden. And the interesting thing with Bolden, he was hyped a couple of years ago as much as what Ben Simmons and Dante Exum were um, because the interesting story a bit with them is that they were all sons of ex-NBA, oh, sorry, NBL imports so US imports that came into the local league here in um, in Cecil Exum and Bruce Bolden uh, in particular that um, they came in. Ben Simmons' dad's name's escaping me for the moment, but uh, they came into the league in a time when the, the league was just trying to build up um, and really took the league to the great, the, the great heights that it did get to in that sort of early 90s. And there was big talk about uh, Jonah Bolden a couple of years ago, he went over to UCLA and uh, he sort of says, oh, look, they weren't using me right. Um, they cut him after a season. He didn't put up great numbers or anything like that uh, and then went to try his hand overseas. And he's had a very good season in Slovakia. Uh, averaging, you know, not Serbia. Serbia, sorry. Um, averaging not massive uh, numbers. Again, about 11 points, four rebounds, but... Um, power forward that's got a bit of athleticism, can guard multiple positions, um, and they're sort of they're, they're talking him up to a reasonable extent. I mean, but the the, the sort of projection at the moment is mid second round, and then uh, whether they may even leave him overseas for another year, depending on the team, or, or bring him over and develop him. But are you familiar at all with, with Jonah Bolton? Have you looked into anything about the, his game? Only only my draft express. Yeah, but so Where it looks like one draft express forty-five. Yeah, so right there okay. in the middle of the second round. Yeah, um, so I mean, I think yeah. he's a guy. If he lands in the right spot, I could see him contributing. Um, if they have some patience to develop him in the right way and, and sort of becoming a bit of a rotation piece. But it is interesting, as I said, that I've followed these guys coming through, these young young guys, and he was rated as highly as Simmons and Exum probably a few years ago. Um, and for whatever reason, it hasn't worked out for him. So the potential was there a few years ago um, with this guy. So, And his dad was a phenomenal player in the NBL days. Um so uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it, it's interesting taking those guys. I think from the, the middle of the second round, he's twenty one, a bit older too. That sort of were highly touted um, earlier in their career and for whatever reason, it's gone off the rails. Maybe a second chance and the right development can see them um, exceed expectations. I think it's, you just don't know with these kids, right? I go, he's kind of got that. What I remember is is uh, quite physical. He's like six ten. Yeah, two twenty. He's got a six nine, a bit of a stretchy four sort of game, and I, I don't know. I surmise there's probably this is kind of one of those kids where I imagine that the interview process, if you can believe it or not, probably means a lot because to go to go from Australia to UCLA to Serbia to the draft, they have to be asking the question: Well, how has your game developed? Like, what have you been working on? Do you have a sense of your own? 
capabilities and strengths and weaknesses and have they seen him progress or did they see someone leave the you know competitive pressures and a structure of a of a a very tight program like UCLA and he wasn't cut out for it did he not have the temperament to whatever take direction or instruction and so he left for the I guess the freedom right if you will for you know international program and that's always my I joke about it, you know, but, you know, Terrence Ferguson versus playing for Mike Krzyzewski or even Calipari, where I don't think there's lots of coaching. I don't think there's lots of X's and O's coaching at all happening at, you know, Kentucky in that manner. But there's probably even less happening, you know, eight minutes a night with the Adelaide 76ers who are trying to win basketball games, right? And so I don't know. I, it's not, I, I don't know. And so I'm, I'm really interested in guys like physical specimens like Bolden to say it could be an amazing story if he said it was a humbling experience at UCLA and went over there and had to fight for minutes and play in front of empty stadiums in front of, you know, 16, um, 16 Serbian cheerleaders, you know, <laughs> you know, it wasn't humbling. Did he develop? So that's the kind of thing I'd look for in a guy like Bolden, who's got the He's like physically quite appealing to NBA players, right? Giant hands, and I'm I'm now reading about go, talk about data. Yeah, Daz, I think he's got giant hands. He's got so wingspan. He's, a, rid of he's wingspan, wingspan and, and hands, and uh, <laughs> he's double jointed or some shit, right? I don't know. Yeah, but uh, so and th- look, the other point I wanted to make about that is it's just it's nice to be nostalgic for me because I grew up. My first basketball experiences really were more the NBL and. And watching his dad, Bruce Bowen, and Ben Simmons' dad was Dave Simmons. He was a real hard-nosed power forward for the Melbourne Tigers for many years uh, in the NBL. So they were the glory days, and we had a lot of US imports that came out. And uh, they were all just fantastic showmen, and that, that was really our our window to the NBA, if you like, because we could all sort of envisage these guys, ah, oh, they, they do well in the NBA, and most of them probably... You know, went in the NBA, maybe they could sit on the end of a few teams' benches. That would have been about it. But um, they were just fantastic to watch and always carried themselves really well. Um, so it's good to sort of see that um, that lineage going on now as Australians. We can we can cheer on their sons um, as they embark on their NBA careers. So hopefully Jonah Bolden will be the latest um, you know, following Exum and, and Ben Simmons into the NBA um, as a, after next year's draft. But the final thing I want to do tonight, Darren, was move on to the quiz for the Uh-oh. night. Now, this is going to be a little bit subjective, a little bit objective. So if I was to ask you who was the – we talked about clutch players earlier today. So who was the best clutch player in the history of the NBA playoffs? In playoffs, huh? In playoffs. We're just looking at playoffs. Oh, and when I mean boy. clutch players, I'm talking about having a, having the ball 24 seconds. So this is this is the the, the way the data's broken down. 24 seconds or less, your team's down one, down two, or even. Who is the best player of all time? Well, I mean, just remember the we remember iconic Jordan moments, right? Where the shooting over Craig Elo or <laughs> shoving. Shoving Byron Nelson, Brian Russell, yeah, Byron Nelson. Yeah, he shoved a 90-year-old golfer. Which he, probably he would have. He was there. He would have. Yeah. <laughs> He'd step over his mother to get to a, you know, to a Vegas table. 
so Jordan comes to mind, right? Um, well, it's funny you bring him up, so I'll, I'll stop you there because the the um, the average for any NBA player in that situation is twenty seven percent. So you're right to guess Michael Jordan; he was the greatest of all time. What would you guess his percentage was in taking those shots? So what you're talking, you're talking what um, shooting percentage? Is that what you're shooting percentage with the ball? You've you're 24 seconds or less on the clock. Your team's down by two, down by one, or even. Oh, so you're talking God. real crunch time. This is these... game on the line crunch time. What do you think you're his getting percentage? Small was? sample set bias, right? But I'm still okay. Right. So, um, God, he'd have to be. I bet he'd be fifty percent or forty-eight. Exactly fifty percent. So is he, he really nine of eighteen? Which is 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 small sample size, of course. Yeah, but still, but still, that okay, is, that is phenomenal. So I wanted to base the quiz around Michael Jordan because okay. I think we we forget just how great he is, um, or how great he was, and, and the fact that he was the greatest of all time. So there's a couple of couple of things I wanted to test your knowledge on, so, and, and particularly looking at sort of the eighty nine ninety season through to when he retired. For the first time, I'm not going to worry about his Wizards comeback um, yeah. in 97, 98. So from from 89, 90 to 97, 98, the Chicago Bulls only lost two matches in the first round of the NBA playoffs. Do you know who the two teams that took a game off them was? A single game. They lost two games in the first round of the NBA playoffs right through that period. Would one? I think one would be the Heat. No, I thought Alonzo Mourning might. It have... was Alonzo Mourning, but it wasn't when he was on the Heat. What? It was when he was with the Hornets. Oh, the Hornets years. The Hornets oh, took a game off them. Dell Curry, Larry Johnson. Mm, that's right. Era. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And, and the other team, it was the eighty nine ninety season. I'll give you that clue. Eighty nine ninety. Um. God, would have been the Knicks. They they wouldn't have played the Knicks in the first round though. No. Um, I don't know. Did the Bucks steal a game with Jay Humphreys and the Jack Bucks, Sixma? Yes. With the yeah, Ricky I was wondering. Ricky Pierce. That's it. That's it. I had a vague record. This was still best of the five in the first round, wasn't that's it? That's right. Yeah. Nice. Where the Bucks could three nearly. You could win year. one game and get excited about it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, you could. Wow, that good time. one. So what about the, the two teams took them to seven games over that period? Do you remember who the two teams were? So we're talking in this late eighties, huh? So this is from eighty nine ninety through to ninety seven ninety eight. Only two teams pushed them to seven games. Oh God! Um, would it have been the Pistons? With oh well, um, the Pistons. I tell a lie in the sense that the Pistons are, you're right, but the Pistons actually beat them in 89-90. Oh, right, um, of course, yeah. 4-3. Yeah. But the technically, yeah. yes, you're right. They went seven games. Okay. And then 89-90, that would have been... Um, was it Ewing and the Knicks? It was Ewing and the Knicks, yes, which was 91-92. Right, right, a couple of years later. And... Um, and there's one more in their very last year, ninety-seven, ninety-eight. Oh, in the in the ninety-seven, ninety-eight. Would it have been? Was that Shaq and Nick Anderson in the Magic? 
No. No. Um, I just keep thinking Alonzo Mourning. I remember Alonzo Mourning was like kryptonite for the Bulls, but I was it Reggie Miller? In it, the was. Pacers? it was. The Pacers. Okay. And the Pacers pushed him. That was a really, really close series. Um, that was possibly the one of the best series the Bulls played. Um, and an interesting thing, I think, about the Knicks one, the Knicks were close to the beating him the year after when Charles Smith missed all the layups. But, oh, um, that was a six-game series. So a That's of funny. What you think so much. Series. I think, obviously, you think, when you think Pacers, so look, I grew up a Bucks fan, right? So hating the Bulls, and I don't remember often who they who they beat, but I, I would remember who they lost to. <laughs> that was quite fun, right? But uh, I definitely think, I think Pacers, I think Knicks, right? And those a bit later on, but um, yeah. And who yeah. was the last, so apart from the Pistons who beat them in 89-90, who else, there was another team that beat them in the playoff series through that through that period. And you did mention them before. Well, it was, remember he had, he came back from baseball, quote unquote, i.e. Yep. gambling suspension. Um, or a Bill Simmons. They only played like a dozen games and they got knocked out that year. Is yep. that the year we're talking That's about? That's the year we're talking about, yes. 94, 95, I think it would have been. Uh, yes, 94, I think, 95, yeah. yes. Because 93, 94 was Nick's, Nick's Rockets. Oh, gosh, 94. Well, you was one of your guesses uh, in a seven-game series. So I'm and I'm 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 only knowing because I'm only trying to win the quiz, not because I know the answer, but it's Charlotte or Miami probably. So no. I thought Charlotte. No, no, no. Not? So okay. you said Shaq and Shaq and Nick Anderson. Yeah. Was the Orlando Magic? Oh, was it? Oh, right, right, right. Because you remember okay. Orlando went to this finals that year, and then Nick Anderson missed oh, the free throws. Of course, sort of had to been. Of course, of course, by Hakeem. That's right. Yeah, I would yeah, have loved right. to have seen Hakeem against the Bulls um, because I think they would have they would have struggled. That that's one series where you think, gee, they would have struggled to um, to stop Hakeem when he was at his absolute peak of his powers. Well, if Hakeem was going for forty and twenty, you're right. But back in the day, these games were still ninety-one to eighty-four, weren't they? And eighty-eight, they, the pace was so oh, it was, it was just an it was ISO. Beautiful. You loved it, didn't beautiful you? Yeah, I loved it. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah, 24-second violations and just isolation. <laughs> oh, you're so you're trying to wind me up, aren't you, before we, before we log off. That's a hard quiz, mate. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. so I love to get nostalgic. They're, they're the days yeah, I love. The, 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 the Riley Knicks, everyone, everyone knocks them, but that was my favourite, one of my favourite teams. So a good good quiz to end on well, tonight well my my sidebar i'm now interested in doing some research but i've if memory served me reggie miller was fucking awesome in crunch time wasn't he talk about a guy who never had a conscience and just not afraid of a moment or a big shot um i don't know if you have the data there but i thought reggie would be quite good yeah i'm gonna, I'm gonna um, dig a bit deeper i do remember reggie yeah. missing the key three throw against the the knicks though in the, in the oh, seven game God, you're right. series they yeah. lost and that was a yeah. year when they really could have um, could have won the because that was in yeah. Game Six. That was when Spike Lee went to Game Six, and he missed the through throw. Um, oh, so they should have won that right. in Six. Oh. So you know that's yeah. So even though he, as good as we remember him in crunch time, there was also a couple of a couple of not so great moments. 
Well, we'll we'll leave it there for today, Darren. That was a, a feel like we covered what we wanted to cover. We'll talk again on Monday, uh, and uh, we'll go over probably some of the weekend games, and no doubt there's some other news that would have broken between now and then. But thanks for again for today, Darren. Good stuff. Thanks, Daz.